Good evening. Thank you, President Barnes, for that wonderful introduction. It's such a pleasure to be back on campus again in the ebb and flow and greet returning students and returning colleagues and new students and new colleagues. It reminds me what a great privilege it is to live and work in this place. In a recent essay, Stephen Greenblatt, who teaches English literature at Harvard and is famous for his scholarly work on Shakespeare, he reflected on the anti-Semitic strains of the literature he teaches. Shakespeare's work, after all, casually assumes everyone shares an unexamined anti-Semitic worldview. And so Greenblatt is confronted with a conundrum. He is a Jew himself. His grandparents had fled anti-Jewish violence in Eastern Europe. And his life was decisively shaped by his experiences of anti-Semitism. When he attended Yale back in the day, for example, he was told by the financial aid officer, we are sick and tired of the number of Jews who come into this office after they're admitted and try to wheedle money out of Yale University. So for Greenblatt, the canon of English literature, that's canon with one N, sometimes felt like the canon with two Ns <laughs> aimed at him. Boom. His experience of reading English literature, he said, left him feeling a mix of perplexity, pleasure, and discomfort. Though it is framed as a struggle with the literary canon, at root, Greenblatt is wrestling with what it means to be part of a community. What do you do when the community you belong to is messy, and sometimes ugly even, when the deep connection it offers also offends and wounds. He wonders, am I or am I not woven into the fabric of this larger whole? And how do I understand myself in relation to that larger whole? The word community gets thrown around a lot these days. Not long ago, I opened Facebook to one of their cheery messages. Thank you for being here, Jacqueline. <laughs> Facebook is now a community of two billion people. <laughs> and we are so glad you are a part of it. <laughs> so the message exhorted me to appreciate the good that happens when the Facebook community comes together. Now, as much as Facebook wanted me to have this warm, fuzzy feeling about being part of them, I have to say, in these difficult days, culturally and politically, I'm not really feeling all the good that our Facebook community is doing. Not surprisingly, we find a different understanding of community in the Old Testament. The book of Exodus tells us how a bunch of Hebrews were freed from a government-run system of slavery, brought out to a mountain on the Sinai Peninsula to meet the God of their ancestors and to become a people 
responded to that same God. At Sinai, God, through Moses, asks this people if they are willing to say yes to becoming a covenantal community with God at the center. In this passage we just heard, Moses reads the book of the covenant, that is, the book of laws that govern life together in community with God and with each other. And when the people say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, that is their yes to God's offer of covenantal relationship. Now, the Sinai covenant is not a contract. To be sure, biblical covenants entail reciprocal obligations between the two parties, like contracts do. But unlike a contract, the Sinai covenant entails a relationship that endures over time. Nor is a biblical covenant simply a promise. To be sure, the Sinai Covenant involves divine promises that are grounded in God's prior gracious actions. God's grace always precedes the law. In the Sinai Covenant, as in most divine covenants in the Bible, there is a complex interweaving of unconditional divine love and God's expectation of obedience. God's grace and human obligation are inseparable. Though the human community fails to uphold covenantal responsibilities many times in the Bible, God never breaks covenant with the human community. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. We will be obedient. <laughs> they won't be obedient, and none of us will be either. On this journey with God and with each other, we are going to screw up. A better translation here even than obey of the Hebrew verb shema is we will listen, we will pay attention. It's not that the people are naive about their capacity to respond in obedience. They know it's not easy. After all, the golden calf episode comes shortly after their big yes at Sinai. And if you don't count all the instructions about building the tabernacle, it comes immediately afterwards. Yes, we will be covenant partners, followed instantly by, oh, we have totally screwed up. <laughs> Conflict and division characterize the rest of the Israelites' time in the wilderness. So covenant is not a panacea. But God does not fail them on that journey. When the Israelites say their yes, they express their trust that God intends good for them, in spite of and indeed because of their failings. In the biblical world, one's individual identity is always understood in the context of the whole assembly, the community. 
It does not mean that God does not care about particular individuals, but rather it assumes that one's identity and one's relationship with a God are fundamentally shaped by belonging in covenantal community. So the quality of the community's life together is a response to God's graciousness. God gives the people the Torah so the community may flourish. And the extent to which the community is structured and shaped by its values exemplifies the strength of their covenantal relationship with God. When the Israelites start out, they do not have much in common with each other, apart from the experience of slavery. They didn't really have a strong sense of communal identity. They didn't really know who they were as a people. They were more like the Facebook community than a community of people with a common identity and purpose. They are thinking about other things. But by the time they get to Sinai, they have repeatedly now complained about the food, the drinks, and the accommodations along the way. They're thinking about those things. While Moses is busy cajoling them, they are busy writing scathing Yelp reviews of the whole tour. (laughs) But Sinai, at Sinai, God gives this people what they did not have before, a vocation, a God-given task to be a community that furthers God's purposes for all creation a purpose expressed to Abraham back in Genesis. God's plan is to bless all the families of the earth. And the community is the agent of that blessing. God's covenant-making disrupts the people's prior identity and forms a new one shaped by their mission. They are to be agents of flourishing for all creation. As we start a new academic year and welcome new students and staff and faculty to PTS, there are just four aspects of community life that I want to lift up. First, ethics are shaped in community. In a study of the effect of implicit bias on the horrifying police shootings of minorities, Psychologist Eric Heyman found that one can predict with uncanny precision where police shootings will occur. Not by whether the individual police officers demonstrate bias against minorities, but by whether the communities in which they live and work demonstrate bias. So this kind of communal prejudice can be likened to smog that envelops a community. It becomes the air people breathe. They breathe that smoggy air, and then they act out of those prejudices quite unconsciously. Police shootings and implicit bias are a negative example, but of course there are countless positive examples as well of the ways in which the cultural air we breathe affects our behavior, usually unconsciously. One famous example concerns the small Huguenot village of Le Chambon 
in Nazi-occupied France in World War II. The whole population of this village gave refuge to hundreds of Jews and smuggled them by night across the border to Switzerland and to safety. In contrast to other surrounding villages, which made no effort like that at all. What made it possible for this community to engage in these risky acts on behalf of others? To be sure, the village had tremendous leadership, exceptional leadership in their pastors, their reformed pastors. But even more important was the deeply ingrained idea shared by the whole village that nonviolent resistance to evil was core to their identity. When asked de decades after the war how such goodness might be replicated elsewhere, one of the surviving villagers thought it would not be so easy to transfer because, as he said, it takes generations to prepare. Now often what we think of as the conscious actions and beliefs and attitudes of individuals are quite unconscious. And they reflect the profound shaping power that communities exert for better or for worse. To a large extent, that still small voice of conscience is socially constructed. And if it is to function well, it requires deep attention to the other. Secondly, covenant community is not primarily for ourselves. You may have seen some talk in Christian circles last spring about a book by Rod Dreher called The Benedict Option, a strategy for Christians in a post-Christian nation. Dreher draws on the ancient rule of St. Benedict to argue that Christians today should engage in a virtuous corporate withdrawal from society into quasi-monastic communities in order to avoid the contaminations of culture. And only in this way can Christians follow a rule of faith and practice that results in effective Christian formation. So we might ask ourselves, is this the kind of community PTS should become? One that sees the culture around us as something to be avoided? Should we withdraw from the world to perfect our practices and beliefs? At first, it may seem tempting. Dreyer's right to see Christian life and practice as distinctive, and he's right to assert that communal formation is crucial to the shaping of Christian identity and vocation. But one way in which the Benedict option doesn't hit quite the right note is on the role of culture in that formation. He believes Christians need to escape the wider culture but this idea requires that Christians themselves are understood to be somehow outside of culture. But each of us here, no matter what our traditions or church backgrounds or theological beliefs, each of us comes here already saturated in culture. There's no such thing as pure Christianity untainted by culture. It's true for Dreher and it's true for each of us. Nor would such a thing be desirable even if it were possible. Fear drives too much of that option, and fear does not make a good foundation 
for faithful action, as the villagers at Le Chambon well understood. A rather different take from Dreyer's on Christian identity in the modern world comes from the Spanish theologian Julian Caron in his recent book, Disarming Beauty. For Caron, the power of Christianity began and continues not because of moral or dogmatic systems, but because Jesus offered his companionship to those on the way. Empowered by one's relationship with Christ, faith is about being in relationship with others, to accompany others on the journey of life. Christians should not withdraw from the world, but should embrace and walk with the other, not, be, not because the other comes to us as a burden, but because they are an intrinsic good loved by God. And this faith is inherently beautiful, he says, in an interview, he said, I wanted to get across that the power of the faith is in its beauty, its attractiveness. It doesn't need any other power, any other tools or particular situations to be resplendent, just like the mountains don't need anything else to take your breath away. So to the fearful desire to withdraw from society, Caron implicitly responds, if Christianity is true, what do Christians really have to fear? The whole faith is about being with others for others. We do not foster covenantal community here at PTS so that we can hide from the world. Instead, we foster the virtues of Christian community so that we can take those virtues out into the world. We take what we've learned about a committed community's power to shape us as faithful, faithful followers of Jesus so that when we leave here, we go out to form and participate in new covenantal communities for the sake of the whole world's flourishing. Whatever joy there is to be had in being a part of this community, and there's a lot of joy, it is not to be privately held. The world desperately needs other communities of purpose and conviction that understand themselves to be agents of flourishing for all God's creation. So our task as a community, like that of the Israelite community, is missional at its core. A third point follows from the last. Covenant community entails flourishing not just for some, but for all. How are we to treat one another within this community? As my retired colleague Patrick Miller has argued, within the covenantal community at Sinai, ethics are not primarily organized around rights, but around responsibilities. This emphasis on responsibilities disrupts our usual way of thinking. The law at Sinai is addressed to the whole community, but also to each member of the community individually. The Hebrew in the law code switches back and forth between the singular you and the plural you. You, singular, shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien followed immediately after with you, plural, that is, y'all, 
shall not abuse any orphan or widow. The people are not a mere collection of individuals, but as members of the covenant community, they are accountable to one another. The emphasis is on responsibility. So the disruptive question for us as a covenantal community is not primarily what are we owed by others, but how are we responsible to others? And beyond simply those in the community, what is our responsibility to those outside the community? In college, I read Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale, now adapted into a compelling if harrowing TV series. In the dystopian society of Gilead, due to plummeting birth rates, women have been conscripted to bear children against their will. In one passage, one of the leaders of Gilead, Commander Waterford, defends the ethics of Gilead to Offred, the sex and childbearing slave in his household. A better world, he says, never means better for everyone. It always means worse for some. The Handmaid's Tale is a meditation on power and abuse, with Gilead as a grotesque distortion of what a God-centered community might be. Covenant logic, in stark contrast, disrupts our desire for power. Because, as the philosopher Chris Cuomo puts it, one cannot truly flourish if it entails the diminishment of others. The community only thrives when all within it are thriving. Better always means better for everyone. We are not there yet, of course, when better will mean better for everyone. And we will not be there in our lifetime. But Christians can never settle for only what is practical. We have an eschatological God, one who takes us all the way to the end, who does not leave us along the way. To quote my Old Testament colleague, Dennis Olson, God will have God's way with the world in the end. For all to flourish, we must attend more assiduously to our relationships with one another, not simply as a practical matter, but because our faith requires it. The Brazilian theologian Ivona Gabara, who has long lived among the poorest of the poor, wants to rethink some of our core theological convictions about how God, humanity, and non-human creation relate to one another. Because those theological convictions have real-world implications for how people live. To love the other as oneself, Guevara says, has to be understood in concrete situations in which each individual is ethically obliged to place himself or herself within the skin of the other. A mutuality takes hold and transcends any principle or judgment deriving from already established dogmatic laws. Similarly, the theologian Carrie Day, who I am pleased to note joins our faculty this fall, in her book, Unfinished Business, Black Women, the Black Church, and the Struggle to Thrive in America, 
She says that the church has the potential to become a community of transcendence. That is, one that possesses a dimension of openness within the world of human experience to others, to difference, and valuable relationships. She is discussing the black church here, but the point has broad implications. The church perhaps only rarely lives up to its potential to become a community of transcendence but its efforts to do so are not window dressing, but go to the core of what it means to be a covenantal community. The fourth aspect of covenantal life is that it's hard. Being responsible to each other means both that community life will not always be pleasant and we will all make mistakes. Let's remember how fast that golden calf comes on the heels of that big yes at Sinai. We are all united by the call that Christ has placed upon us. There is one body and one spirit, but that unity does not mean that we are all the same. Unity is not uniformity. The strength of our community lies in those very differences that sometimes may seem to separate us. Genuinely hearing and respecting these differences requires the virtues of which Ephesians speaks. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. I could tell some stories about navigating difference at PTS, and for those of you who are returning to campus, I bet you could tell some too. <laughs> but I want to tell a story not about life here at PTS, but about uh, a man I met in Tennessee this summer. I spent a week with a group of church youth working for the Appalachia Service Project, repairing homes in a struggling Tennessee community. All week, we worked to repair the roof and siding of a family's home, and most importantly, we developed a relationship with the homeowner. That's a core value of the organization, ASP. The homeowner, our homeowner, Bob, he and I had pretty much nothing in common. He was, among other things, quite fond of his guns. Those of you who know me, I am not fond of guns. So by his own account, Bob could neither read or write. And we had as much overlap in political views, although we did not really go very deep into this, but it was pretty clear we were sort of John Stewart and Jeff Sessions. <laughs> so, so despite these profound differences, over the course of the week, we swapped some stories. His mainly of hardship, he dropped out of school in third grade, the addictions that had ravaged nearly every member of his family, and his accounts of his time in prison. He and his wife were embattled in a legal effort to gain full-time custody of their granddaughter, whom they obviously loved. I told a few stories, too, that I thought would connect to his in some way. We got to be friends through the sharing of these stories. One day, he made lunch for our work crew, 
a feast of meat and vegetables from his overflowing garden of which he was very proud. Unfortunately, he discovered something about me that I had kind of hoped to hide from him. You don't eat meat, he said, <laughs> just like that, accusingly. Then he scrunched up his grizzled face and he peered at me really hard and he said, I hate vegetarians. <laughs> I want to shoot vegetarians. <laughs> I didn't really have too much time to become extremely alarmed before he said, really genuinely puzzled, I, I don't get it. You eat meat, but I know you. I could see him struggling with the cognitive dissonance, and I felt it too. You are so different from me, and yet I know you. We are friends. A hermeneutic of hospitality goes a long way in negotiating difference. You notice there was food involved in our story. <laughs> Being slow to take offense, and trying to understand those we engage, acknowledging that when we are speaking out of our deep commitments, others are also speaking out of theirs. These are some of the virtues needed for life in covenant community. For over a thousand years, pilgrims have been making a journey of hundreds of miles across Europe to the shrine of St. James in the city of Santiago de Compostela in northwest Spain. Tradition holds that the body of the Apostle James lies within the cathedral. For the pilgrims who walk El Camino, the way of St. James is a journey of faith, which bears some similarities to the Israelites' journey recounted in Exodus. You carry everything on your back, conditions can be a little rough, and God is meeting you on the way. This summer, I, with a group of youth and adults from my church, went on pilgrimage to Santiago. We walked 170 miles of the Camino in 11 days, averaging about 15 miles every day. The journey was challenging in body and mind and spirit. For most pilgrims, there are times along the way when you think you will not make it. I know there were for me. Because it is so challenging, many people weep in relief and joy when they arrive in Santiago. Our group arrived on a Friday, and we attended a huge pilgrim's mass in the Cathedral of Santiago, complete with a procession of bishops and about 15 priests. During the Mass, one of the bishops gave a brief homily, no doubt repeated at other pilgrims' Masses, and he made three simple points. First, our whole lives are the Camino, the way, the journey that Jesus walks with us. Second, while we're on the Camino, we tend to one another, offering what we have from our packs that will meet the need of another. We care for one another in this way, and third, what we have learned along the way, the lessons of the Camino we must share with others on life's journey. Those were the three points in the bishop's homily. 
At least I think he made these three points. To be honest, my Spanish is not very good. And so it's quite possible he said something entirely different. <laughs> but that is what I heard him saying. <laughs> Which, in my experience, is pretty much how sermons work. <laughs> The preacher says one thing, and people hear something, something else. And you sure hope that the spirit is in the mix there somewhere. Anyway, these three points are equally fitting for life at Princeton Seminary, whether you just arrived or you've been here for decades. We are on the way with Jesus. We need to care for one another. And we need to go forth from here sharing with others the joys of life together. The way is not easy, so I'm going to add a fourth point to the bishop's homily. Of course, it's possible that the bishop actually also talked about this. <laughs> I don't, I can't say for sure, but I don't think he did. Blisters, blisters. My fourth point is blisters. In any case, every pilgrim, almost every pilgrim on the Camino gets a blister or 150, somewhere in between. My own feet were a collage of blisters, fearsome to behold. Blisters form where there is friction, when an irritant rubs skin until it's red and raw and painful. You will get blisters in seminary. You will encounter irritants. Maybe it's new ideas you don't like, or people who don't seem to pray enough, or they worship in the wrong way, or people whose way of being in the world is seeing the world you find foreign or alien or objectionable. You will get some painful blisters from these encounters. But here's the thing about blisters. Over time, painful blisters become new, tougher skin. And the skin on your feet gets stronger, and you are able to go farther and cover more difficult terrain than you could before. The author of Ephesians knew that we get blisters on our journey together because it's when you have painful blisters that you need to act with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another. You don't need to practice those virtues if nobody rubs you the wrong way. The New Testament writers knew this as well as we did. Maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace requires intense effort. All the early Christian communities knew this really well. Covenant community is exhausting and demanding precisely because it breaks up our parochialisms and disrupts how we sort each other into boxes and categories. That is why it is exhausting and that is why it is life-giving. We do this work in classrooms but also in our breaking bread together in Mackay, in daily worship here in Miller Chapel, and in our residences, and in all the in-between spaces of our life together. Life in covenant community demands that we say, these people, so different from me, are essential to my learning to who God is calling me to be. By way of conclusion, I return to Stephen Greenblatt. In the end, he finally made his peace with Shakespeare, and indeed with the rest of Western literature, even when he was wounded by the anti-Semitism he experienced there. 
He came to believe that Shakespeare's ability to imagine the worlds that others inhabit outweighed the fact that he, ab ab he had absorbed the prejudices of his time. What Shakespeare bequeathed to us, Greenblatt says, offers the possibility of an escape from the mental ghettos most of us inhabit. And he argues that this experience of ambivalence about belonging in a community is not his alone. This was, he says, only a version of the experience shared by every thinking person in the course of a lifetime. What you inherit, what you receive from a world that you did not fashion, but that will do its best to fashion you, is at once beautiful and repellent. You somehow have to come to terms with what is ugly as well as what is precious. Greenblatt decided that despite its flaws, Shakespeare had enough things to teach him about what it means to be human, and so he committed himself to the community of literature of which Shakespeare is a part. Covenantal community, the community that Christ calls us to, disrupts the two comfortable mental ghettos we have made for ourselves. It will give us some blisters along the way, but God is at work in us here at PTS, even in the pain of the friction we encounter, perhaps especially in the pain of that friction, making us stronger, preparing us for the journey, for the way ahead. <laughs>